Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back! Welcome back, kids! All right, so we are here for part two of A Preview Was Enough. Also, a.k.a. Did You Know Ellen Green Did Broadway Musicals, right? (laughs) Yes, because she's done several that have closed in previews. So it's like a double whammy with the theme here. But yeah, we're back with another Broadway show. And apparently, like we said last time, there's only like six or seven of them that have actually Broadway musicals closed in previews. And Ellen Green is the only actress to have starred in two of them. Yep. One day she will come and visit us and it will be magical on 20 different levels. But for (laughs) for now, we should jump in to talk about... I mean, we announced it on the last show, right? We did. All right. So let's get into... Drum roll, please. Let's still do a drum roll. We're going to do a drum roll. All right. We're going to do a drum roll. (gasps) The Little Prince and the Aviator. So... This is a musical based on a very famous children's slash adults book that mm-hmm. I actually think I pretended to read in school because I had no interest. <laughs> did you did you read this one? Yeah. Are you okay. kidding me? I mean, it seems like a Christina. I book, love so. sci-fi. I love I fantasy. Yes. No, I did. You I did love read it. Airplanes. I don't know if I love airplanes, okay. but I I've traveled a lot. No, I right. I really love sci-fi and fantasy, and this certainly clicked, checked that box, Cha-ching. you know, cha-ching at the time. Uh, so let's give, let's, let's give the background. So we've got music by John Barry, lyrics by Don Black, who is one of Bobby's favorites. Yes, you remember. Oh, I remember. Um, book by Hugh Wheeler, and it's based on the book, obviously. Uh, and I'm not going to say this man's name correctly. Antoine de saint Exupéry. Mm, maybe I, I, you know what? I was gonna try to pull my friend, my best French off, but like French is like the accent that I just can't even try. So, yep, nope. Uh, we're gonna call him Antoine. We're um, gonna call him Antoine. That's we're gonna good. call him Antoine. So, Bobby, you want to give this plot since it was one of those books you pretended to read? Sure, I'm gonna pretend to have said this before too. Okay. <laughs> The Little Prince and the Aviator is based on the classic book by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Now, the musical deviates from the original in that Aviator Tony, whose plane crashes in the Sahara Desert, is explicitly the real-life author Saint-Exupéry himself. And the plot alternates between flashbacks to the actual events in his life, juxtaposed with his interactions with the fictional Little Prince, a refugee from asteroid B-612. A musical. Yes. The musical. <laughs> I mean, at face value, like, if you were to take many a children's novel, this one has, I think, the roots to be something that sings, right? It's, like you said, sci-fi. It's fantasy. It is larger than life. You know, in the world where musicals can have falling chandeliers and 
time dragon clocks and uh, (laughs) all the things like, okay, sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and we should say, because the journey to Broadway for this was really interesting um, because they actually made this into a movie musical prior to this in the seventies, right? In 74. And that was Lerner and Lowe doing the music with and famously Bob Fosse plays the snake and all the conspiracy theorists in the world think that Michael Jackson still has dance moves from that five minute song in the movie. But, I mean, how many uh, Beyonce stole moves from Bob Fosse? Of course he did. Everyone, sure. Everyone does because it's brilliant. The same producer from the film, a Joseph Tandon, he decided, no, this is going to Broadway. Like, this was so brilliant, even though that film was canned by both critics and fans. That's not one of those lovable musicals from the 70s like Willy Wonka Children. No. No. Not even a little bit. So he's like, no, this is brilliant. So therefore, I'm going to take it to Broadway. And he did without an out-of-town tryout. And, and with John Barry, who we have actually covered one of his musicals on this podcast before. In our Clopenings episode. What episode was that, Christina? Oh, that was episode 22. 22. And we covered Billy in that one, correct? Yes, we did. Was that closed on opening night? But John Barry is famously known for like writing the scores to basically a a bazillion James Bond movies. Right. So like it has lots of Oscars and lots of fancy fans. And then, of course, Don Black wrote The Worst Witch, which is why... (laughs) Also, a lot of other things. <laughs> I mean, um, a lot of other things. Um, not- but what's interesting to me is that it's the same producer, and he was so convinced that it was brilliant that he needed to take it to Broadway, but didn't keep Lerner and Lowe's music. Which I think Lerner and Lowe's music is better than what I listened to from this show, but that's I, I would not. argue yes, I agree. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, Continue, sorry. Yes. Yeah, I just find it a really strange that this man who's not generally a Broadway producer decided not to do an out-of-town tryout. Yeah. Um, That, to me, feels like a lot of hubris, but that's okay. Um, And then what's also crazy is, so they started rehearsals at the end of 1981. Previews start January 1st, 1982. And so they started rehearsals, I think, in November of 81. Like, a couple weeks before they're supposed to start previews, they were like, just kidding. New director, new choreographer. Well, and new actor. Anthony Rapp famously starred in this musical on Broadway. He was not originally cast as the Little Prince because they thought he was 10 years old at the time. They thought there's no way that a 10-year-old could carry this musical. And so they originally cast another actor by the name of Jonathan Ward, who was a big TV star eventually in the 80s and famously starred in the movie Mac and Me, which is Paul Rudd's favorite movie ever but um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh Jonathan Ward was older but apparently like they during rehearsals realized like n- no we're gonna cast the 10 year old instead so Anthony right. Rapp yeah and it, I, that was his Broadway debut I think if, I think so yeah does it count as a debut if the show doesn't open I don't know I'm gonna say yes there you go because if it were me I would be like no I opened on Broadway. <laughs> I performed on Broadway. After yes. <laughs> it never opened. But it only lasted 20 previews. And what's crazy to me, Bobby, this is the story of this show is just unreal. Like, right. I don't think you could write it. So then 
they get to like two days before opening and the producer stalls opening. So doesn't cancel it. Right. Just says, we're going to push it. Everybody take a week long break. And he goes to try and raise more funds. But the reason why is Go that the Niederlander organization who owned the theater raised the amount of money that he put had to put in a bond by opening night from 50000 to 90000 mm-hmm. And because the show hadn't been doing gangbusters and previews and he didn't plan for that money, it was basically considered a ploy to kick the show out of the theater. Yes. And it wasn't considered. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Second, but, right. Yeah. He like pauses it, but then apparently Michael York, who is starring as the writer slash aviator, right? Slash Antoine. We're just gonna go with that. Yeah. He he was like, Well, this is obviously not opening. So when they were like, We're just holding off on opening, he was like, Okay, bye. And like got on a plane and went back to LA. Wait, I didn't know that part. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> he just pieced out and was like, yeah. I'm not I'm not doing it. I don't know if he said he's not doing it, but he was like, Well. I'm gone now. And so, oh. like, just went back to LA because I guess in his head, no, we're not opening. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, he probably knew better than they did. Um, I mean, maybe. Um, but anyway, so show doesn't end up opening. And does then not open. Does not open. And then A. Joseph Tandit went to court. Yes. Because he was fully convinced that he was charged this extra money to close the show so they could open it for little Johnny Jones, which was, which came in after, which they were above the title producers on, which shady shady. Yeah. So he took it to court and ended up winning $1.3 million. Apparently one enough that it almost recouped after the fact, like apparently it's one of the few occasions where a flop somehow finds money after the fact and almost makes its money back. Yeah, well, but here's the kicker. It was only two-thirds of his original investment. Yeah, of course. Which is insane to me that it cost that much to put this show on. Like $5 million. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. I mean, well, yeah, okay. So, But in the 80s, I mean, in like the beginning of the 80s, like that's it, a lot. That's a lot of money. I mean, look, I you know, we were discussing a little bit before we jumped into this you know, we both were able to listen to some audio from the show, which mm. well, we can talk about in a second. I, last minute, thanks to a friend, shall remain nameless, got a video bootleg. Uh, so I got to skim through most of the Broadway show Insane. and did not look like it cost millions of dollars. It's crazy. Uh, because most of the show takes place on a bare set. And, really? Oh, yes. For this show, I was like, well, that's a that's a that's a thing right there. Like, for Holy a show that cow. should have lots of magic, there was really only one truly, I thought, magical sequence from the bootleg I saw, which was when he sang about the planets. And there was, that was it. Is that the one that Anthony Rapp does years later? At In that? concert, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, everyone should go watch that because it's really funny. He also, like, gives back story and, um, like, his perspective of the process and stuff like that, which has to be... I was thinking about that. I was like, how would that be for a 10-year-old to like go through that kind of drama as part of your like first Broadway show? Right. Like that's I'm, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I, when you think of everything, which we won't even mention exact details, 
But when you think of everything that Anthony Rapp went through in the 80s and into the 90s and to still wind up, you know, coming back as an adult with things like Rent and the revival of Little Shop and, um, you know, uh, Charlie Brown and things like that. It's kind of it's kind of amazing because we always hear about child stars in Hollywood, but we never really like focus in. For the most part, other than Andrea McArdle, you know what I mean? Yeah. We never really focus in on how dark it can be for some of these kid stars on Broadway, you know? Oh, totally. Totally can be. I'm just going to circle back to the fact yes. that this was closed by the Nederlanders. Shady, shady closed by yes. the Nederlanders to open Little Johnny Jones. Here's the funny thing. Little Johnny Jones was a revival and it closed on opening night, friends. So not only was this show composed by someone we've referred to as being someone who wrote a clopening. Yep. It was replaced by a show that actually was a clopening too. Yeah. And let me tell you, it did not do well the first time around on Broadway either. So um, Little Johnny Jones was written by George M. Cohen, and you would probably be familiar with some of his works, such as, you're a grand old flag, you're a high-flying flag, and also, give my regards to Broadway. Yeah. Um, well, and, and then, of course, James Caan playing him in the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy, which also I know that. is your favorite thing ever, but... Oh, of course. Um, but, like, just to give a synopsis of, like, what this show was just so we can all be on the same page. Here we go. Synopsis. Jockey Johnny Jones is hired to ride the Earl of Bloomsburg's horse at the English Derby. Crooked gambler Robert Anstead frames Johnny as a thief and kidnaps his sweetheart in order to make Johnny throw the race. Will he succeed? The musical. Question mark? Will he? I don't know. Um... Yeah, I actually read like a more detailed synopsis of this show and I'm not surprised it hasn't succeeded either times. It's kind of convoluted, but this but this revival starred Donny Osmond. Oh, wait, did it really? Uh huh. Oh, that (laughs) that is magical, actually. I know, right? That would have been really young Donny Osmond. I would. Yeah. Right. And well, I mean, he was a star in the 70s, Donny Marie. Maybe early 20s-ish. Yeah, okay. Um, But here's the other funny thing is that this show toured the year before it went to Broadway. Okay. And that starred David Cassidy. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. That makes Um, sense. But of course, Donny Osmond is a bigger name, right? But the original production of this opened in 1904 on Broadway. Yeah, it's an old one. It's an old one. So it's it's also not relevant in any of the, like, none of the music is contemporary or anything. And then they did a silent film version in 1923. Oh. Yeah. So it has a history and it certainly has um, a nostalgia, I'm sure, in the 80s for those of a certain age. Americana, Reaganism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they would have, what, been in there? I don't know. 70s, 80s, you know, and they want to go see a show, maybe. I don't know. It's so strange to me that they would kick out the Prince and the Aviator. And I'm not saying it was a great show. It obviously wasn't. But the fact that, like, they really doubled down and did the shady shady to get this show in and then have to pay out over a million dollars because of what they did. Well, they weren't expecting to do that part. And I think they tried to fight it. And the judge was like, 
yeah, no, you're paying it. Like you yeah. are not correct. Well, so the little prince and the aviator, you know, I did try to watch it. A lot of the reviews in the 1980s and, you know, in not since Carrie Ken Mendelbaum mentions it's a show that's difficult to sit through. And, you know, as a flop, a holic flop connoisseur myself, I always try to not feed into that negativity, but it was right. really difficult. It was difficult to watch and get through. Um, was it? The music, it just, it reminds me, I mean, one of my favorite things in the world on top of The Worst Witch is <laughs> um, the 1985 made-for-TV Alice in Wonderland with Carol Channing mm. and every TV and star under the moon and some for some reason Ringo stars in it for no reason. Because <laughs> why not? Um, yeah, because, and Shuler Hensley sings the song about how much he hates dogs and cats. And it's, yeah, um, that that's at least interesting. That's a that's a magical train wreck that's got iconic moments. Sure. You know, and for kids in the eighties, I'm sure it was fun to watch. And for parents being like, what the what the heck? Who who smoked or ate what before they wrote this <laughs> musical? But you expect that from Alice in Wonderland. You do. I mean, I think everyone felt that way about the animated film as well. Yeah. But the Little Prince is kind of the male version of that, you know. It's a it's a intelligent um, young person who has a different outlook on life than the grownups do. You know what mm. I mean? That's that's the crux of kind of both of those stories, and they have lots of fantastical otherworldly elements. And the score to the Little Prince just I don't remember much of anything from it after listening through, you know. And yeah. you know we we know this with. Now in Canto and Lin Manuel, and we don't talk about Bruno on the radio. Like <laughs> every time that song plays, it's like you, you got to jump into it. When you write for children's theater, or children's musical theater films, it, the music has to be memorable. Yeah. You know, and it, to both adults and children, you can't yeah. go too far one way or the other. And yeah. I don't think this musical hits. I mean, you listen to some of these songs where you're like, yeah, this is good. No, I was not. No, because I think that the one one of the ones that's available on YouTube is the snake song. Mm -hmm. And that. I don't know, it just doesn't ring true to me in any way, shape or form. It feels yeah. strange because you understand I understand the context of that section of the story and it just doesn't it didn't make it like there weren't any snake references at all. There was no, yeah. um, like, what Bob Fosse was doing in the movie. Like, as not great as that was. At least he was doing the hissing on the S's, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it was at least reference to the fact that it was a snake. Yeah, and he's, like, also gives the vibe of someone I wouldn't let my children hang around, so. Also that, which like, is <laughs> what you want from that archetype, there, right? Yes, yeah. The thing that struck me when I was reading through the synopsis is that I could synopsi. I don't know which way that goes. Synopsis. Um, synopsis that I was reading through on the internet of the show. They all kept talking about these flashbacks. And that to me, I, I can imagine that that would be very difficult, especially without an out of town tryout and nothing to like, there was no way for them to work through some of those inevitable pro problems that would happen in the book with things right. like flashbacks. I just don't see how that's going to work. You know, everyone knows the story of the little prince. Right. That's it. Like, there's no need to do flashbacks and, like, really make a strong connection that the aviator is is the original writer and 
you know, do a Finding Neverland situation. It, it just like either do one or the other. Yeah, it was, fa- I mean, fascinating to ch- attempt to watch those moments because, you know, you have Michael York playing this character. And yeah, it's endearing when he interacts with Anthony Rapp, you know, as the aviator and the little prince. But then you have these flashbacks of of the author in his real life. And so mm-hmm. then it gets weird when you get to characters like Suzanne slash the Rose, you know, when we think of Ellen Green, we think of kind of over the top and wacky and there's this sentiment about her. So when she pops out of this little planet, like I, I wish that I'd found this three days ago. So you could have seen this, but <laughs> this planet rolls on the stage and she like pops up and she's got a flower around her head and she's doing these weird movements and being very wacky. Ellen Green, you're like, I buy this. But when she plays Suzanne in the real life with the author, it was actually really interesting to see Ellen Green play such a grounded, normal human being on stage. Okay, because, you know, even her career in Hollywood post Little Shop has always been out there, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's Rockadoodle or whether it's Pushing Daisies or whether it's um, she was in Bunheads too, our favorite. Oh, Uh, right. But um, yeah, so it was interesting watching that. But it also took me out of it. If I was a kid in 1982 watching that, it yeah. was like all of a sudden you're going to like, it's, it's, you're watching not the great Gatsby, but you're watching Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know what I mean? Yeah. Interact with each other. And you're like, what is, I just, can the fox come back? Like, <laughs> can the snake come back and sing a better song? Yeah. I just, even just reading it on paper to me, it didn't make sense. Especially because the prince and the aviator, no matter what you do, you are telling that story if you keep that as your title. Right. And so therefore, a lot of children are going to show up who love the book. And the book is like a a book that smart kids read. So these are not going to be unintelligent children. These are going to be children who know the book, who are going to understand uh, the subtext in the book. And they're going to be like, "Mm, what is this? Right. They're, they're not going to buy it at all. Yeah, I completely agree. I would also say that just to like do the parallel back to Finding Neverland, like if you want to tell the story of how the author wrote this and why, then you really have to go to the other side of it like Finding Neverland does. Right. And I wouldn't say that I saw Finding Neverland and I wouldn't say that it's like my favorite musical I've ever seen. But right. I would say that the film was incredibly successful and I love oh. watching that film. And it still has the heart of Peter Pan in it, right? And this just like, I just don't see how this works. You know, finding I mean, Finding Neverland, the film, when you, I mean, Peter Pan is a story we all know and adore and we've seen it 20 million times. But what was brilliant about Finding Neverland is that you got to see those pieces. That's where the hook mm-hmm. came from. Oh, mm-hmm. that's Tinkerbell. That's the thimble. You're like, oh my gosh. It's blo- It's like Wicked. It's blowing my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't like, oh, and you saw the snake here. And that's that's what we're doing. You, uh, that's not what I took away from this. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's like you couldn't do a spin on Alice in Wonderland without... It would have to be by such a... And I'm and Hugh Willer is a wonderful book writer. I mean okay. Sweeney Todd. Hello. But oh, you would okay. need you would need a brilliant playwright to craft the magic of how do we take this this story to have it inspire that story and then how yeah. do we show it? I mean, it just doesn't seem if you're gonna fire your director, like 
and before. choreographer. Both yeah. Done. Like, so that, it just feels like you need such a strong team of artists to craft something like that. Yeah. And I don't think this producer was looking, I think he was just like, Lil Prince, it's going to be on Broadway. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I'm going to make it happen no matter what. You know, there's something you got to love about that energy, right? So let's talk about what else was happening on Broadway during the season because there were yes. a lot of flops. And I, I, I'm going to mention some that came out in 1981 because this was like basically yeah. the tail end and then the very beginning of 82. So like I want to talk about like what was coming before and what was coming after, right? So right. we had Cleavage, which we oh. talk about in episode 22 of Clopenings. Clopenings. Um, Clopenings. Of course, we had little Johnny Jones, as we talked about already. Um, Seven Brides came out, and it was a floppity flop. Episode like, three, kids. Go back and listen to it. We got to make it through the winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, a Doll's Life was flop. also in this, also a flop. We will um, cover it one day. Merlin. Also a flop. We will cover it on this podcast. Yep. Alice in Wonderland. I don't know what that means because I don't know what Alice in Wonderland is. It's a musical. Is it really? <laughs> yep. I looked it up. I'm pretty sure it was also a flop. Um, and then Dance a Little Closer, which I think was a success. Oh, no. That that show is officially nicknamed Close a Little Faster. So Oh, great. So never mind. <laughs> yep. Um, and then The Showgirl, which I wasn't familiar with that one. I didn't know that one. Oh, I don't know. No. Um, and play me a country song. Also, never heard of it. Flop. And our buddy Brooks Almy, who was Alan Green's understudy in Little Prince, also did play me a country song that year, which also flops. So, like, oh my uh, gosh, poor Brooks Almy. <laughs> our props need to be due. Alan Green might be the actress who starred in Do Flops the Closed in previews. But Brooks Almy was an understudy for big actresses and two flops that season. So. And we talked about she was also one of our ones from last season that we oh, talked about. Annie Warbucks, yes. Yes, that's right. Man, the 80s were not kind to Brooks Almy. Um, no. although hair, hair went well. Um hair went well. Hair went well. Uh, but then Cats opens in October of 1982. Right. So that's what's coming, right? Like that's what's coming round the bend. <laughs> Well, for Broadway, and that's like the big, and it kind of ties into where I wanted to go next, mm -hmm. is that's produced by David Geffen and Cameron McIntosh, okay? And um, they also, that same year, produced a little show that had Little Prince been successful, Miss Ellen Green may never have starred in. They also produced the original off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors. There it is, friends. Yep, there you go. So now, Little Shop Off-Broadway was when? 1982, in May. So if this show had lasted She would have never months, been able to do it. And she almost didn't, because famously, Faith Prince originally got cast in the role and turned it down to do one of your favorite things in the world. <laughs> the IBM Industrial. <laughs> well, me, I don't know about the IBM one, but... You love those industrials. And for those of you listening who do not know what we're talking about when it comes to the industrials. The industrials. The industrials. Go do a deep dive into a little docu called Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's on Netflix. It's a fantastic documentary. I think it's only about an hour long, maybe a little bit, maybe 90 minutes. Right. But it's a beautiful documentary and I learned so much. Like that was how so many 
actors in general, not just Broadway actors, but all actors, made right. a lot of money back in the day. And you, this docu is really one of the only places where you can see clips from them because they don't exist because they were in like interior corp. Well, yeah. and they were they were protected IP for some of these corporations. Right. So they didn't want it getting out, right? But anyways, go do a deep dive into that. But that is why Faith Prince turned down Little Shop of Horrors. And Ellen Green, who became available at the last moment. Yep. And history was made. Yeah. And honestly, I'm so happy that that's the way the cookie crumbled because I could not imagine Little Shop of Horrors without Ellen Green. Yeah, and I know Faith Prince did it. She replaced eventually Mm -hmm. in the 80s. And I think I've seen footage of her. She's very good, but it's like Ellen Green. I mean, come on. It was her role. We, you know, we've now talked about her in two episodes in a row. And I think in both projects, she's very talented. I think Broadway or the Broadway community was just waiting for the right property to embrace her. And so sometimes you have to look at these flops that we, and like what, what happened because these shows flopped? You know what I yeah. mean? Because truly with this one, had this been a success, had it even run for four months, Ellen, we may not have had her in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And that show could have still been a hit with somebody else, could have gotten them the movie role. The rest is history. Or it could have flopped. I mean, I would venture to say that a lot of Little Shop's success is due to Ellen's characterization and just the DNA she imprinted on that show. I completely agree. It's very important who you get to do those workshops and originate those roles because, like you said, their DNA gets imprinted into the writing. They will change lines because something works better on that actor or actress. They will will change whole songs. We've seen it. Wicked is a prime example. Right? Like, there was completely other songs that were written for Stephanie J. Block for Alphaba that when they brought in Miss Idina Menzel, they were like, that doesn't work on Idina's voice. That's not how she sings. Oh, and they're good songs. They are. They are. They're great songs, but they didn't work for Idina. And that's what you should do. You should write for who's there. But that means that Wicked was forever changed. I'm actually really interested to see if the film, if any of that stuff's brought back. But that's another conversation. That's another story. Never mind. Anyway. But let's also talk about like current events for this time period. Okay. Right? Like you have the AIDS viruses identified this year. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the beginning of the end starts. Diana and Charles get married. If you want to know more about that, please go listen to episode one of season two. (laughs) Yes, please. Don't do it. But also, like, some big pop culture things that happen in 1981 are the Raiders of the Lost Ark come out. Right. And uh, the DeLorean car debuts. Real? Okay. I mean, you know, 1982, I think, is when the 80s really gets their footing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, in those early 1980, 1981, it still feels like the 70s. But it's like the 80s are with like when I think of the wedding singer, like that's right. really 1982, 1983 is when you start to see that iconic stereotypical world that existed for about eight to 10 years. And it was uh, uh, an era defined by Reaganism, defined by the Cold War, defined by the AIDS crisis, defined by the war on drugs, and a lot of just vibrant pop culture. Yeah. You see 
you, you see characters, you see Madonna, you see Boy George, you see just characters well, in the media. Well, and Bowie, they were all coming up at the end of the 70s. Right. So you can imagine that a show like Little Prince and even to bring it back to Little Johnny Jones, like how are you going to compare there's it's dated material at that point. Right. Right. And especially with something like little Prince, you're, you're gearing towards kids. And unless you go like full tilt. Yeah. Like they don't care. They're like game boys coming soon. Right. Like <laughs> they're like, where's my little pony? Like, yeah. Where's on. my little pony? Also, rainbow why, bright. Like, that's... why aren't there bright colors and, you know, glitter. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, and where's the 80s synthesizer? You know, not that I ever want anything to gear more towards to pop rock, but this is not a pop rock score. I mean, not this is even close. And it, it, you know, I think that would have done better for it to have those beats and rhythms and synthesizers. I mean, it's missing synth. And not to go back to Little Shop and Cats, but those shows which did successful this year are, are kings of synth. You know, when mm-hmm. I describe Little Shop to people. Yes, it's the 60s. It's a throwback to Motown and R&B. But mix with that 80s synth. It's like the Ghostbusters synth. You know what I mean? Little Shop isn't Little Shop without the 80s. It's got this like weird, I don't even, it's like this weird retro and now double retro because with that synth, it's just crazy. Okay, can I also just for a second, sorry, one more circle back. Okay, I mean, there's a lot in this episode. There's a lot, but... At least I'm stating it this time. Okay. Yeah, okay. No, but one more circle back. You said that Ellen Green pops out of a flower and like becomes a plant. And I just wonder, like, is that is is that what inspired the finale in Little Shop? <laughs> I like to think that Howard Ashman saw her in this show and was like, she's Audrey. I mean, she literally is Audrey on stage right yeah, now. Right now. Um, Audrey, too. Um, I, I think you're on to something there. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, no, the Little Shopping Cats thing is so interesting. Not only, like, with them being the ones that embrace the sound of the 80s with synthesizers and stuff. I'm looking at this list that you've given of the shows that opened that season. Little Shopping Cats had workshop and developmental labs that brought them to the stage. Like, they didn't just happen overnight. Like this show did. Like, I just don't understand why the show opened on Broadway without an out-of-town tryout or a workshop. Well, it didn't open on Broadway, but... I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, wait a second. You... What were you talking about with the Schuberts? Because, like... Oh, right. I know you, I know you got confused, but, like, this, this was all about the Nederlanders. Wait, like, what? But the Schuberts did the same thing with Beetlejuice. When? Oh. At the Winter Garden. They said, oh. get out so we could put in Music Man. <laughs> I mean, but Beetlejuice had been like losing money for a long time, though. Not just 20 previews. No, that's true. But I mean, it's it's the same kind of deal. It is. It is. I also I want to say that it was slightly different in that Beetlejuice was coming up on the end of its contract. I mean, I think, you know, granted, I did work for a Broadway producer, so I should know this. Um, But (laughs) I have worked on a Broadway show, too. Um, You know, I think you have to. As far as I know, once a show is open, you have to make a certain percentage of the gross and it's written into the contract. And if you don't, it's like called the stop clause or something. And I I think it's different per contract. It can either be you can dip under once and they're like, okay, bye bye. 
Um, or you have to hit it so many weeks in a row. Oh, right. I think that's what it was, Bobby, now that you're saying that. I think it was that they had dipped under when it's that really terrible time in January. Right. For every Broadway show. Like, it doesn't matter if you're Wicked or you're Jersey Boys. Like, it just sucks during that time because tourism isn't happening because it's really freaking cold and there's generally winter storms. And I think that's what it was. They saw their opportunity to do it that way so they could get Music Man in. I mean, well... And then COVID, so... Well, Music Man is there, and then they all got COVID, so... Yeah, and, well, and now, thankfully, Beetlejuice has found a new home at the Marquee. And and one day, we'll do an episode on the Curse of the Winter Garden. (laughs) Or the Schubert's. There you go. (laughs) Well, I think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, this is supposed to be a mini-episode anyway, right? That's right. So whether it's Rachel Lily Rosenbloom from our last episode. Or Breakfast at Tiffany's from season one, episode 15. The freaking out of Stephanie Blake. Truckload. One Night Stand. Senator Joe. Face Value. Bobby Boland. Me, Jack, you, Jill. Let My People Come. A Way of Life. Infidel Caesar. Letta had a little song. The Office. Or Venus is. There are shows that have been flung to the Broadway's fathomless files where a preview really was enough. And though we're likely to never see that happen again, because shows have to open on Broadway, uh, these shows will live on on our little podcast and will likely continue keep popping up, just like Helen Green out of that planet, uh, (laughs) over and over again. Uh, Christina, um, we had no clues, so... Why don't we tell them what the theme of our next episode pair is? You ready, friends? Here we go. Drum roll, please. (sighs) The books you claim to have read. And there are a lot of them to choose from, folks. Yes, there are. All right, kids. Thank you so much for turning into season two, episode of my favorite flop we know you're probably listening on apple podcast or stitcher or whatever but in case you're hearing this on some radio somewhere and you don't know what this is we're a podcast all about broadway flops and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and you can also find us on all social media platforms at my favorite flop and we love to hear from you guys so if you have musings concerns, factoids that you want to share with us, please reach out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or the Ticket It Talks so we can chat further as the Flopaholics Anonymous. Or you can be like your grandpa and just visit us on the web at www.myfavoriteflop.com. All right, Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners today? My husband and I have decided never to talk again about my addiction to aviator puns. It's a sore subject. Pew! <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.